0: Welcome to Specialty Stories. Thank you so much for taking some time to join me and my guest today. I hope you're having a great week, a great day, and I hope you're excited to learn about transplant hepatology. I have Dr. Avash Kalra on the podcast with me, a transplant hepatologist who's been out of training now for seven years, and you're going to learn all about how Dr. Kalra became a transplant hepatologist, what got him interested in transplant hepatology to begin with, and much, much more. Don't forget to stay tuned till the end of the podcast, and i give you some more information about how to find out about transplant hepatology. We start the discussion to find out how Dr. Kalra became interested in transplant hepatology to begin with.
1: I was uh, first interested in transplant hepatology. I think uh, the earliest I can remember was really just in medical school. Um, you know, I think I knew at some point during medical school that I wanted to do gastroenterology and I hadn't really considered hepatology um, uh, or transplant at all. Uh, there was a you know I think and I always say this to students and trainees, that so much of our uh, what we end up doing in our careers is shaped just simply by the experiences we have or the people we're exposed to. And it mm-hmm. just so happened that one of um, one of our uh, professors of family medicine at our medical school had a pancreas transplant um, a few years before I started medical school. And I heard the story. We actually had a podcast of our own back back in those days at our medical school. And we actually had him on our podcast, and we talked about it, and I think that was the first time I ever really explored the possibility of transplant, and uh, that kind of led into um, exploring the field of transplant hepatology, where I trained in residency and fellowship. It was a major liver transplant program. It was actually at the center that did the first ever successful liver transplant uh, ever, Um, and so I got exposed to kind of that history, and it's a pretty cool field because uh, it's pretty new in all of medicine. The first success, successful liver transplant was done in 1973. And it wasn't really until the 90s that with advances in immune suppression that outcomes for patients with liver transplants improved significantly. And so, you know, you think of the whole history of medicine, you know, the modern era of transplant is, is 30 years old, mm. uh, which is pretty amazing. So uh, it's, it's nice to be in a field that's new and growing.
0: Yeah. And and just right off the bat to to clear up any misconceptions, the what what misconception I had, right? I, I read your specialty and I immediately jumped to, oh, transplant surgeon. And you're like, wait, wait, no, no, no. I'm like, oh, wait a minute, no. <laughs> transplant hepatology. So so you're a medicine trained, GI trained and and you focus on patients who have had transplants and you're kind of their long term care provider after a transplant.
1: Uh, so yeah, with a couple of caveats that I'll mention. So you're right. Uh, going to transplant hepatology that does mean after medical school a residency in internal medicine, a fellowship in gastroenterology, and then a fellowship in transplant hepatology. Yep. So uh, as I was saying, you know, sometimes the, our patients will will ask me uh, once once I see them before a transplant if I'll be the one doing the surgery, and I'll joke with them that that's the last thing that they want um, because. Uh, that's done by a transplant surgeon surgeon, excuse me, who does a transplant surgery, um, training following general surgery training. So, so yeah, we work very closely, obviously with the transplant surgeons, but they are different. Um, and we, as a transplant hepatologist, um, we manage patients with chronic liver disease, uh, both before and after transplant. Um, certainly we see patients with general liver disease issues unrelated to transplant as well. Um, but, uh, our specialty certainly focuses on the transplant population.
0: And when you say that you are following them pre-transplant, is that when when a patient is seeing their their general GI doctor and it's like, "Hey, okay, this isn't going well. You need to get on on the transplant list." Is that when they are referred to you?
1: Yeah. Um, so so there are a number of reasons certainly that that a patient might need a liver transplant, but but that's that's. Uh, I'd say accurate. So patients who are referred with chronic liver disease um, that is severe or perhaps has developed a complication that we do transplant for, such as, for example, uh, certain liver cancers. So those patients will come to us, uh, um, we will be taking care of them uh, during the you know evaluation process while they're on the transplant list, and really every uh, aspect of management re- regarding their liver disease, um, and then that'll transition certainly after transplant to. Uh, a different set of issues like managing immune suppression uh, and uh, avoiding or managing any potential post transplant complications
0: what do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions around transplant hepatology?
1: <clears throat> so I think that just with with liver disease in general, uh, I think probably the most uh, um, I, I I think that there are probably two um, that i'd focus on. one is a misconception that uh, all liver disease is related to alcohol use, um, and I know that that's a misconception. Just because sometimes when I tell a patient that they have cirrhosis, they immediately will say, "So cirrhosis again?" For the listeners, is is uh, you know uh, advanced fibrosis or scarring in the liver. Um, when they've developed that, uh, sometimes they'll recoil and say, "Well, I've never had a drop of alcohol." And actually, there are uh, there are dozens of causes of chronic liver disease. But in addition to alcohol, there's Viral infections such as hepatitis B and C. Uh, there are um, non-alcoholic causes of cirrhosis such as fatty liver disease. And actually that fatty liver disease or what we call non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or non-alcoholic steatohepatitis is quickly becoming the number one indication for liver transplant in the United States, mm-hmm. um, surpassing even alcohol and hepatitis C. So it. Uh, um, speaks to kind of a changing um, landscape of what causes liver disease in the first place. And then there are some autoimmune and genetic uh, diseases as well uh, that are less common that we always check for. The second misconception is that uh, when you're listed for a liver transplant, um, that there'll somehow be um, an aspect of, of waiting time. Um, while you're on the transplant list. And the, the way that transplant works in the United States is that it's a sickest first policy. So there's something called a MELD score, which stands for the model for end-stage liver disease. Uh, and people are listed for transplant based on their MELD score. The higher the number, the worse their liver function, and the higher there are on the list. And so waiting time as a result doesn't go into it. And that kind of reflects the, uh, the supply-demand disparity that is the reality of transplant. Um, so just to give the listeners some idea, there are roughly six to 7,000 transplants done in the United States every year, uh, but at any given time, there are over 15,000 patients on the waiting list. So in 2016, um, uh, almost 3,000 patients died while they were on the liver transplant waiting list or were removed for becoming too sick to undergo a transplant. So these patients are sick. Um there are some of the sickest patients in all of medicine, but waiting time doesn't go into, into the, um, the calculation for uh, being on the list.
0: Hmm. What traits do you think lead to someone being a good transplant hepatologist?
1: Well, uh, good question. So I think um, you, so there are, there are a few. I mean, I think that uh, uh, for people who want to go into transplant hepatology, I think that it's, uh, it would, would attract people who um, like variety, first of all. Um, so what, when I say variety, I mean kind of variety in clinical scenarios that we, we work in. So um, just on any given day, I might round on patients in the hospital in the morning and then I might go to the endoscopy lab and perform a few procedures and then I might see patients in the clinic in the afternoon and those patients are both pre- and post-transplant. So sort of see the full gamut of, um, of scenarios just in, in one day. Um, you certainly have to be detail oriented. Uh, it's, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's one of the, the more high stakes kinds of, um, fields just because you're, you know, these patients, like I said, are sick. And so you have to be willing to, and comfortable with dealing with very sick and complicated patients. Um, and I think that, uh, You know, like I said, to to get into transplant hepatology, you have to do gastroenterology first. And so another part of it is certainly you have to be procedurally oriented because we perform endoscopies and uh, liver biopsies and other procedures on a daily basis. And so being inclined to, you know, perform medical procedures uh, is certainly a, a trait that's important as well.
0: For a student who may be interested in this field, but lacks the confidence or maybe some of the, the technical skills at this point with doing those procedures, is that something you think most students will be able to learn?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question, actually. Um, mo- uh, I wish I had um, uh, data on this, but uh, I can tell you that most, if not almost all um, uh physicians who enter a gastroenterology fellowship, um, almost none of them have performed an endoscopy before they start fellowship. Um, it's, uh, it's not something that's typically done in medical school or in training as res- as residents, um, but to be honest, it's it's a with practice a, a procedure that is picked up um, by everyone within a few months typically and then sort of mastered through the rest of fellowship and certainly in your career as well. Um, it's, uh, it's a little bit, I mean, it's, you know, uh, it, there are more advanced, complicated GI procedures that do require additional training. But for someone going into hepatology, um, the most common ones are an upper endoscopy and a colonoscopy. And those can be learned, uh, I think, by any, any physician entering a fellowship. And so um, that's uh, not something to worry about too much uh, before going into the field in the first place. Um, they're fun to do, uh, and certainly you have a lot of time during fellowship to, to master it.
0: does a typical day or a typical week look like for you?
1: Yeah. So a uh, typical day, like I said, um, <laughs> I, I like to joke that I take things hour by hour. because I'm never quite sure what's going to happen next. But, uh, when I come in in the morning, um, and I work in a, uh, setting where I, in a in, for me, in any given day, um, I s- might see patients in the hospital or in the clinic, um, and certainly details of a schedule might change depending on what type of job someone has or which hospital they're at, <laughs> but most most hepatologists will spend some time seeing patients in the hospital, some times seeing patients in the clinic, and some time doing procedures, and how that time is split up during the week or day is obviously going to vary at the different hospital or program or center that you're at um but uh, it's possible to be doing all those on on one day um the uh the lifestyle is busy i mean it's a busy job without question um we're off when when you get more and more subspecialized and and hepatology certainly i mean it's it's a subspecialty of a subspecialty mm. you end up um there end up not being as many of you uh in The surrounding area, and so you get a lot of referral calls from from hospitals that, for example, don't have a hepatologist or don't have a transplant center. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you spend additional time um, guiding other hospitals or other physicians through cases, sometimes even recommending transferring those patients to your center for further care. Um, So there's some time spent doing that as well. I also, uh, as part of my job actually uh, here in Denver, Colorado, do some outreach uh clinics in our surrounding states so for example uh tomorrow i'm going to be flying to casper wyoming which is uh just just north of us um to do a clinic there for the day Uh, there aren't any transplant hepatologists in wyoming there aren't any in in montana either and so we actually spend a day up in montana a month a couple days a month in in wyoming to provide care to those patients as well (laughs) it's a really rewarding part of the job for me and part of the reason I wanted to do this particular um, position to allow myself to uh, sort of expand the care to surrounding states where they, they don't have that subspecialty care.
0: That's really cool. What is um, What was the thought process for you working in a community hospital versus the academic hospital? Obviously you're, you're based in Denver, University mm-hmm. of Colorado, the, the UC Health System is a huge uh, academic medical center what was that decision to, to be in the community, uh, at a community hospital versus an academic hospital?
1: Yeah. So I think, um, the, uh, so taking, uh, I'll certainly get to the uh, specific answer of taking a quick step back. So, you know, I, I did my training at the university of Colorado. I did my residency there. I did my BI fellowship, my transplant hepatology fellowship there. I was there for seven years. Um, and before, before going to Presbyterian St. Luke's, which is a It's actually the only other transplant center in all of Colorado. Um, It uh, is a newer transplant program started in 2015. Um, And uh, the reason is, so it's Presbyterian St. Luke's certainly compared to a university system. You know, you could, uh, the term community hospital gets used, but really when it comes to to transplant, transplant is a tertiary care kind of service, Um, no matter where it, Delivered um, or provided, I should say. And the reason that I took this job at Presbyterian St. Luke's is that I'm very academically oriented and actually still get to, you know, do the sort of traditional academic type things. I mean, we still have medical students, residents, fellows, still have an opportunity to teach. Um, still, pro- to me, academic uh, uh, environments mean that everybody is, you know, providing care in a evidence-based manner and is up to date on the evidence and literature. And certainly we do that here too. Mm -hmm. And then for me personally, I took this job to help, help a program grow. I mean, it's a, a a program that's um, very successful, has uh, the best liver transplant outcomes in the state and it's continuing to grow Uh, and it's really rewarding to be able to do that.
0: Awesome. Okay. So you get a little, little bit of both there. Sounds like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned the the training path a little bit. Can you just um, talk about, so post-medical school, what mm-hmm. that training duration and what those steps are to, to end up as a transplant hepatologist?
1: So uh, if you're going to go into transplant hepatology, first steps, first, first things first, is getting into an internal medicine residency program. Um, internal medicine resi- residency programs, as, uh, as I'm sure the listeners know, are three years long. Um, now, I will say that kind of like, uh, to add to my comment earlier about how important experiences are, um, if, if a residency is not at a place that has liver transplants or hepatologists, I'd say it's, it's uh, less common just purely based on what the trainees are exposed to. It's less common for those trainees to end up going into hepatology. So it's always a good idea. To think about, and it's okay not to know, but if, if someone does know um, going into residency what they might want to do, then it's always good to think about, well, do they have that fellowship or do they have those kinds of docs here or, or nearby at least for me to have that exposure to? Um, so again, that's three years. Uh, after uh, residency, that it would be a GI fellowship for three years. Um, and then uh, a transplant hepatology fellowship is one year. And then uh, once you've completed uh, all of those fellowship then you take the board exam in both gastroenterology and then a separate board exam in transplant hepatology as well
0: so it's a nice short process that's what you're saying right exactly <laughs> exactly
1: yeah um, it's not it's not quick and you know that's why it it takes that de- it takes dedication yeah. now i will say like like i said at the beginning of the interview it's 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 a fun field to work in it's uh you know it's a growing field transplants are very exciting um, field because things change a lot, and things change just in the sh- short term. Like I said, the modern era of transplant is only is less than thirty years old, and so um, you know, just just data or experiences that are gathered by liver transplant centers over the course of two or three years could shape the next decade uh, of practice. And it's much much harder to shape things in more established fields, and so uh, it's a long road, but uh, rewarding, and you know it's even though you're you're in fellowship or or training for a long time before you get here um, you're still providing a lot of care and it's still rewarding Um, and it's a it's a field of lifelong learning as as is all of medicine obviously
0: yeah now it worries me a little bit you said it the more that you kind of niche down in your specialty the the fewer (laughs) there are so what does call look like for you if there are so few of you
1: yeah so it so it, it it completely depends on on where you end up working um so if uh um, I would say that just generally speaking um most transplant hepatology programs uh will have anywhere from uh two to eight or nine hepatologists um average is probably five or six uh we have uh three at our center um and so That means I'm on call a third of the time, um, which, uh, again, speaks to the um, uh, frequency that I get calls from outside facilities to talk about patients, which is um, uh, an experience I like. But um, to be honest, I don't mind being on call. I mean, I think it's kind of it's nice to provide that service. If I'm on call and I have to come into the hospital, it's usually for something emergent that I can help with. Um, And so I I certainly don't mind that aspect of it. It's something to consider, though. Um, but I would say that it's, uh, it's something that you can, um, kind of navigate as you're looking for jobs after a fellowship, because you can directly compare hepatology positions that where you might be on call, you know, uh, 20% of the time or less versus a third of the time or more. And and you can really directly compare what, what, uh, those different, uh, programs might be like, uh, and that can be a decision you can make as you're looking for jobs
0: do you feel like you have enough time for life outside of the hospital?
1: I do. Yeah, I do. And, 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 uh, and that's, that's important. Um, you know, people going into, for anyone going into any field, I think it's important to, to weigh the balance of, uh, of work and life and not, and I always say, you know, they, they should, it should be a balance. Um, you know, I have a family and, uh, I'm, you know, make sure that I'm home for, for dinner um, and uh, spend time with my kids. Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's important.
0: How competitive is matching into transplant hepatology? Yeah,
1: good question. So, uh, it's, it can be, I, well, so uh, I guess it's competitive in the sense that um, there aren't a lot of transplant hepatology positions. Mm-hmm. So, like, for example, in Colorado, there's one position. Per year for the whole state. Wow, um, which is the one position at the university, but uh, it, because it's subspecialized, you know, you also have less people going into it. Um, so, uh, the one thing to kind of combat that that a lot of fellowship programs have done is they're they're changing the model a little bit so that uh, that some programs and and for the listeners who are interested in this, it really would just be a matter of looking on the website or calling programs to see if this is something they're offering. But some programs are offering a system where you can actually consolidate your three GI years into two. And then you do a transplant hepatology kind of fellowship as uh, what would have been your third year for people who know going into GI that they're going to do hepatology. Mm. So it it at least cuts out a year um, and avoids the need for applying for another one year position somewhere. Uh, just because it's, I think it's being done really to encourage people to go into hepatology, um, because it is uh, so subspecialized that, you know, we don't want to have too few of us. Basically,
0: yeah, makes sense. What opportunities once you become a transplant hepatologist are there? Are there further opportunities to subspecialize?
1: Uh, well, good, good question. So uh clinically i would say no um but there are um there are multiple opportunities that um can open up so um in addition to just being involved you know locally at your transplant center seeing patients etc et um there certainly are opportunities to be involved in like uh administrative roles um or uh policy so to give you an example, um, the the way that uh, transplant is set up in the in the U.S. there it's sort of split. the 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 transplant centers uh, throughout the country are kind of split uh, arbitrarily, but geographically. So, um, so just as an example, Colorado and its surrounding states are referred to as Region Eight. There are a total of eleven regions in the country, and each region kind of comes up with their own. Uh, uh, sort of manages their own centers within the larger umbrella of the uh, united network for organ sharing which is the main um, sort of transplant governing body and within each region there's opportunity to change policy and um, uh, contribute to uh, a variety of of, of issues uh, each region has meetings meetings. Um, a couple times a year, for example, our region just had a meeting in Kansas City, actually the, the day after they had the Super Bowl parade. So it created some travel difficulties, as you might imagine. But regardless, we went to that meeting and talked about policy. So it's possible to still be involved in other uh, areas of medicine that aren't clinical. But as far as subspecial, subspecializing, uh, not, not specifically.
0: Okay. For... You, where you are currently several years into working, if you could go back and tell yourself something to encourage you a little bit more as you were starting out, what would you, what would you tell yourself?
1: Just that it's all worth it in the end. I mean, you know, no matter what um, field people go into, uh, there are days where, you know, uh, in residency, you're on call for, uh, you know, overnight or for you know over 24 hours and you're uh, sleep deprived um and uh dealing with a complex situation and you're just you're thinking well I still have you know x number of years left of this um it's it's uh it's easy and i, th- I think common uh, and i know it's common i mean there's a whole field of literature about the issue of burnout in medicine mm-hmm. um and it's common to feel it um, and so i think that Um, and most, and most trainees feel it at some point. Uh, and it's, it's normal. Uh, but I don't think that at the time during training you're it's, it's normalized. I think it's more normalized now and there's more of a focus on resident and fellow wellness and issues like that. But I think that if, um, if I could go back, I think I'd, you know, say that, uh, it's, it's uh, a process that is trying, but worth it in the end. I mean, it's one of the, most privileged, uh, professions in the, in the world once you're, uh, once you're done. And, uh, uh I don't think that there's, um, anything that I can think of that, that's more rewarding than the, what we as a field do. Uh, of course I'm extremely biased, but at the same time, um, it, there are some rough moments along the way. And so I think I, you know, just, just reflect and, uh, say that, uh, you know, keeping the long-term or big picture in mind is important. Um, and that speaks to the balance that we talked about too. So, you know, there's less time for that work-life balance in, as, as a resident and as a fellow, it's just the reality of, of, um, how medical training is and, uh, trying to find the, um, uh, time to, you know, focus on the, on life outside of work as a trainee is important. And I think that trying to do that as much as possible is, is, uh, something I'd, reflect on and go back and try and do more of
0: what do you wish primary care physicians knew about what you're doing day in and day out as a transplant hepatologist to help help you do your job and help their patients better
1: so i think um there's uh there there's a lot of things probably but um i think a couple that i'd highlight is that um you know uh Patients um, who have, just as an example, um, hepatitis C. Uh, it, you know, I think all of uh, any primary care doc knows now that that sort of er- the era has changed. Uh, it's easy to treat hepatitis C now, or I should say, significantly easier than it was before. Um, there's a lot that goes into the decision to treat um, a patient with decompensated cirrhosis meaning cirrhosis that has resulted in complications uh and i think that those patients should be referred before before actually starting hepatitis c treatment um to discuss the appropriateness of timing of of treatment um that's one issue Uh, another issue is is for patients with alcoholic liver disease which is still very common uh trying to get those patients into a um like a some sort of counseling or rehab program or a program where they get screened for alcohol or encouraged sobriety um is really important even if possible even before they see a, a liver doctor just because um some of those patients are being considered for transplant and uh uh need need some period of sobriety kind of proven before they uh they get there um and then the the last thing would be um for you know Thinking about fatty liver disease. And that's something that primary care docs see a lot of. It can be kind of picked up as a clue on abnormal liver tests. I think that from time to time, I'll, I might hear a patient tell me that they they had abnormal liver tests checked by their primary care doc uh, years ago and were told it was abnormal. We're told that maybe they had fatty liver and they, they don't show up to me years later until they have cirrhosis. And so, kind of thinking about which patients should be uh, seeing sooner um, would be a, a thing I would tell primary care docs now that said primary care docs are wonderful they have a uh, i'm not trying to criticize them in any way um but those are just a couple small things
0: yeah what do you like the most about your job uh
1: the variety again just just uh, i think the the liver um to me uh you know part 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 of my interest in it grew from just liking the pathophysiology of liver disease and the um uh, the complexities surrounding transplant. But then on a day to day basis, I like it because of the variety, number one. And number two, just the, the people I get to work with um, uh, and taking care of these patients. So it's a multidisciplinary field. I mean, we work with surgeons, dieticians, uh, interventional radiologists, um, and uh, uh, psychiatrists, uh, certainly primary care docs and GI docs every day. Sometimes all of those for one patient in a single day. And so Having, having that multidisciplinary nature uh, of care is important and rewarding. And then, uh, you know, our patient population uh, tends to be, uh, um, like I said, varied and uh, rewarding to take care of. It's, it's pretty cool to see a patient uh, after transplant who is uh, sick and on the verge of dying just months prior. Uh, and that's something that uh, is humbling and, and rewarding, certainly.
0: What do you like the least?
1: Oh boy, you're really asking questions <laughs> now. No, uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's a really, it's a really great question. Um, I think that, um, uh, I, you know, I'll be honest with 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 you guys. You know, I I love my job. I love this field. Um, I, 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 there's nothing that is coming to mind that I uh, dislike about it.
0: Oh, um, at at least electronic medical records.
1: Okay, fair enough. Fair
0: enough. <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a common enemy we can all get behind.
1: So, so you're right. I mean, you know, I, I wish there were a way where uh, we didn't have to have, uh, rely on fax machines every day. You know what I mean? So <laughs> that's, that's fair. Um, but no, it's a rewarding field uh, and certainly something I love.
0: If you had to do it all over again, would you still be a transplant hepatologist?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I can't imagine doing it all over again, but, but, uh, absolutely. I, no, I'm, I'm, I'm half kidding, but, uh, I would, uh, I would definitely do it all over again.
0: Do you see any major changes coming to the field that somebody coming up through training should be aware of?
1: Uh, well, um, you know, I think, I think the field is going to change, uh, certainly, um, as far as what, um, kinds of, um, changes is a little, little harder to say, to be honest. Um, I think the, um, there've been so many advancements in care for patients both before and after transplant that, um, you know, the field now is, is unrecognizable from the field, um, 20 years ago. So, uh, it will change. Um, it's, it's always going to change, but, uh, like as I'll give you an example. I mean, in medical school, I, I couldn't have imagined telling a patient that we could cure them of their hepatitis C, and here I am now telling patients that. So um, I think one one area that could that could change is you know we currently don't have medications that uh, reverse scarring in patients who have uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. That's something that's probably going to change because there are a lot of clinical trials for medi- for interventions or medications. Mm-hmm. Um, there's in fact, several dozen of them ongoing right now. So something hopefully positive will come of those and we'll have more advancements in care.
0: Any last words of wisdom for the pre-med or medical student or even resident listening to this thinking about transplant hepatology?
1: So I think the, the key is trying to um, see as many uh, kinds of... So if someone is thinking about GI and hepatology specifically... Uh, the key is trying to see as many um, clinical scenarios as possible. So most uh, of medical training as a medical s- student, certainly like during clinical rotations, for example, uh, is spent in the hospital um, and patients in the hospital with chronic liver disease are very sick. Um, some of them don't make it uh, and it can, that can be really uh, sort of trying and uh, from an emotional standpoint, it's uh it wasn't really until I was a resident and seeing patients in the hepatology clinic that I saw the difference between a patient in clinic and a patient in the hospital. And the goal obviously is to you know keep patients out of the hospital. Um, patients who, I guess what I'm saying is when, when you're in training, you're seeing a very selected kind of group of people uh, who are very sick to the point that they've been hospitalized. And that's not a lot. Of, I mean, it's, it is a lot of our daily life and as far as what we do professionally, but a lot of it is not that as well. And I think that uh, when, when you're seeing subspecialties as a trainee, you're really not seeing the whole picture if you're just seeing the patients in the hospital. And so if you think you might be interested in it, uh, you know what I did was I emailed a transplant hepatologist and I said, can I just start coming to your clinic once a month or, uh, or however frequently it was um, just so, so I could get additional exposure. Um, you know, you, there's time. Uh, to do that, um, sometimes, uh, hopefully, outside of what you're already doing, if you're interested in something, you know, sometimes it's about seeking out, seeking out your potential mentors, uh, and uh, that's the that's the advice I have. I mean, trying to gain as much experience as you can if so, if you're interested in.
0: All right, so there you have it again, Dr. Avash Kalra, transplant hepatologist, talking all about his profession. There are a couple major professional societies for transplant hepatology, including the American Association for the Study of Liver Diseases as well as the International Liver Transplantation Society. Go check out those organizations. And as as we're recording this, we're still in the middle of the pandemic, but as soon as the pandemic is over, find out where there are conferences potentially that you can go to. But again, go check out those societies, see if they have any virtual Uh, virtual events coming online anytime soon so you can go learn more about transplant hepatology for you hopefully this episode was helpful don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so that you can get it every week on your device next week we have a great episode talking all about allergy and immunology have a great week we'll see you next time here on specialty stories